have no hands but yours to tend my sheep. No handkerchief but yours to dry the eyes of those who weep. I have no arms but yours with which to hold the ones grown weary from the struggle and weak from growing Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service. Above all, I'll seek out light, love, and helping hands being shared between our many neighbors on this planet, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. I have no way to open people's eyes Except that you will show them how to trust the inner Today my guests on Spirit in Action are Sarah Harder and Olga Besolova. Sarah is the president of the National Peace Foundation, and Olga is a Russian-born, Soviet-raised activist with the organization. They build foundations for peace through a number of programs in Russia, the Middle East, Africa, the USA, and elsewhere. Olga was secretly baptized in the Russian Orthodox Church, secretly because her father, as a member of the Communist Party, could not have anything to do with religion. She does not feel positive about the overall role that the Russian Orthodox Church plays in civic life, both because of the way they use people and because of the restricted roles that they attempt to assign to women. Sarah Harder has made the transition from Catholic to Episcopalian to Unitarian Universalist, which is her current religious home. Sarah has a long history of activism among women's groups in the USA, and Olga provides an intriguing glimpse into life in Russia before and after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Welcome, Sarah and Olga, to Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark. We're very pleased to be here. And welcome, Olga. Здравствуйте. She speaks Russian, in case you all didn't catch that right away. I want you both to tell me right off what the National Peace Foundation is about, when it started, what it does. Just give me the overall picture. Would you care to start, Sarah? 
The National Peace Foundation started in the mid-70s. It was initially a group of grassroots activists who were determined to counterbalance, as possible, the military academies by setting up a U.S. government peace academy. As that 15-year campaign came to success in the late 80s, the result was the U.S. Institute of Peace, which was not, in fact, exactly what the activists were hoping for. The U.S. Institute of Peace continues to build and to grow. As a matter of fact, it's in the process of having a beautiful building on the mall in Washington, D.C., but it has been much more, I would say, a sort of academic think tank than it has been a real activist or training institute for people who would be peacemakers, in other words, who would deal with conflict resolution and so forth. When I came on the board of what was then called the National Institute of Peace Foundation, it was determined that there was a great deal of dissatisfaction with what had been happening during the Reagan years when the Peace Institute was created. It, as a matter of fact, turned into the Institute for the Cold War. I mean, the principles and the focus was very much on Sovietology and things of that sort. And our members, we, in the course of the campaign, had gained some 35,000 activists and contributors understood that while we wanted to continue through our official status to lobby for the permanent funding of the U.S. Institute of Peace and lobby to make it a more liberal and actual peacemaking center, that they wanted to see more evidence of why they initially dreamed of a peace academy, and that was to help to train and to send activists to deal with what we knew were not only academic principles that had made peace building something more than some fuzzy, soft-headed ideal, but also to make things really happen, actually building peace, actually doing post-conflict work that helped to resolve that conflict. As I say, this was just when I came on board, and I had just begun my own work in what was then the Soviet Union, and I had just become fascinated with the idea of the enemy that I had grown up with as a child, first of the Second World War and then of the Cold War, the, suddenly seeing that the enemy I had been trained to see looked just like me, facing the same struggles internally to turn the machinery of war <laughs> into something that dealt with the major social and economic issues at hand. So I began my work then in the Soviet Union and have continued since actually 1989. That has been my role for the National Peace Foundation. But the National Peace Foundation, in fact, has programs in other parts of the world. We have had a program in the Middle East that brought Palestinians and Israelis, youth together. We are now expanding our programs in the Middle East. Our programs in Russia have been thriving. We have programs in Africa, and we had for some time a program with Cuba. And as you know, under this administration, that's become increasingly difficult. We work with Africa University, which is in Zimbabwe. It's an all-Africa university, and we help them to build a peace leadership program. All of their students now are required to take some coursework relating to peace and conflict resolution, but they also have people who are graduate students in programs that deal specifically with peace building in the context of the very troubled continent of Africa. Thank you, Sarah. I'd like to hear about this from Olga's point of view. Olga, having grown up in Russia as part of the Soviet Union, 
I'd like to hear your perspective and why you got involved with this National Peace Foundation. I want to start uh, from 1990, not from my childhood uh, when I grew up in Russia, but I will tell about this too. But I want to start from 1990 when I met with Sarah by the Soviet American summit, which uh, was arranged in United States and many organizations from Soviet Union and United States participated. At that time, I was a deputy director of the biggest aviation research center in Soviet Union. It's something like NASA in America. But additional, I participate very active in new women's movement, which started Perestroika time. This Gorbachev came, and Perestroika gave to us new possibility for to create new organizations. It's interesting when we started our first what we call women's club, the head of our local communistic party committee asked me, for what do you need this organization? We already have one in Soviet Union. Maybe you can understand by this very short note how far we were from democracy. We already have one women's organization. Why you need another? <laughs> but if we are talking about Soviet Union, of course, I was 40 years old when I met my first foreign friend. It was not Sarah, it was uh, Khaled Shulman from New York who came to Moscow and we met by some conference too. I was 40 years old. And because I lived in very close city and I work at a very close uh, university, and for me, of course, I could not compare our life in Soviet time was as ghetto or not, because we were very active and my childhood was very interesting because I always was a leader in pioneers' organization, children's organization and Soviet Union, then in Komsomol, and then I was a member of Communistic Party. It's interesting that I came to Communistic Party when Gorbachev became to be the head, when many members of Communistic Party leave party because they started disappointing this, but I decided that I want to support Gorbachev when I become to be a member. I had very active life. I was a sportmaster in archery. I had many friends. I want to say you that when I was maybe 20 at home, we had very big radio equipment with name Mir. It was very strong radio, and we could listen the voice of America in Russian. At one side, it was a very big opening of the world. For instance, the voice of America read Solzhenitsyn, whom we could not read at home, or Bulgakov, Master and Margarita, the famous novel about the beginning of Soviet time. And again, we could not buy these books. Sometimes now, when I'm coming to Eclair, I like the mostly what I like to go to borders. And Sarah cannot understand how can I spend at borders hours and hours. Now in Russia, in Moscow, we have very big bookstores where it's possible to buy everything. But maybe it is my hunger from my childhood and young years when in bookstores it was many shelves of Lenin, 
and material Marx, material of Communist Party. And when I buy in uh, 1965 Salinger, I don't know how they published T.J. Salinger catching on the eye. I tried to send you the message about the situation when, or the mood in which we lived. It was active, wonderful life, very close from the world. But at the same time, we got through some strange ways the race from different world. For instance, what I remember from my childhood, one of the friends of my older brother, he was musician, and he went to United States with circus orchestra from Moscow, and he returned back, and I was maybe six years old, and he brought a lot of science of America, gums, cigarettes with beautiful pictures, yes, <laughs> some pictures, magazines, and again, it was like something from another planet. We didn't know that it's possible. And when we met with Sarah at this summit in 1990, we decided that we can make some projects in Russia. At first, it was local projects which connect very tight with women's movement until 2000, uh, when I was a deputy director of this CAGI, which is like NASA, big institute. We worked with women's organizations across the Russia. It was always volunteers for me and for Sarah and for our experts. But then, since 2000, I was invited to be a first director of human resource department for new Russian company, this huge company who produce aluminium, Siberian Ural Aluminium Company. It was more than 60,000 employees in 20 plants which located in different regions of Russia. There we started our new international project which connect with addiction. You know, this problem of alcohol addiction and drug addiction is a new problem for new Russia. Of course, we had drug addiction in Soviet time, but it was so local and it was so much by control because Soviet Union had very strong boards. After perestroika and during perestroika, when we opened our boards, it was good for people, but at the same time, we got all bad things which exist in the world, and it flew to us by any possible ways, like pornography, like bad movies, like bad products, and sometimes I tell to Sarah that when I'm coming to the market of clothes, I say that for me it seems that all world wait when Russia will open the doors for everything what kept in the storages maybe during <laughs> hundred years and now it's on our markets. Who's big job, who's 
be sunshine performed there by mary knish it's actually a song the base of which was written by a four-year-old boy back in 1928 four-year-old russian boy you're listening to an interview with olga besolova and sarah harder both members of the national peace foundation one thing i wanted to explore with you olga A number of people in this country have the opinion that the reason that the Soviet Union fell apart was because we had so many arms here. We won the arms race. That made the Soviet Union collapse and give up because they couldn't match the number of bombs we had. Is that your impression from having lived within the Soviet Union? Is that what you thought happened? I really not inside of this subject, but I think that it's not the reason why Soviet Union collapsed. I think it's mostly connect uh, with people's opinion about freedom. Maybe it's strange, but you know, the first time it was very difficult for Soviet power, the first time when Soviet soldiers went to Berlin, and they suddenly looked at the life in Europe is not the same what they knew from Soviet propaganda. And when many soldiers, they returned back to Soviet Union, I think it was the first sign that not everything what we are doing is the best in compare 
what we knew about Western countries, Western style of life, we knew that it's very bad life for children because we don't have kindergartens, we don't have free education, but we had it in Soviet Union. And the life of people here is very bad in comparison to Soviet life. But suddenly the soldiers discover that it's not so. They see rich cities, they see many people, many families who lived wonderful without Soviet power. It was the first moment. And then when the global cooperation started in airspace area and scientists go to different countries and return back, suddenly more and more scientists, actors, writers went outside. And I think this, how can I say correct, this mass of new knowledge, new opinion, growth and growth and growth, and people become doubt. And I know about me, one of my friends, when I was 20, he studied at Moscow University, and then he went for one year to Poland, even not to America, to Poland. And from Poland he sent to us, not sent, he, when he returned back for vacation, he brought to us magazines, and some books, even in Russian, which we could not read here because it was not published here. And he told about life there. And then he decided even to stay there, and KGB in the moment kicked him back. Even for me, I grew up in very good family, very, very Soviet family. Even I become doubt that our life is the best life. And I think... Many, many people started to think that maybe we need change. Maybe we need another kind of life. Maybe we need more open life. I want to be clear about this. Growing up, you weren't dissatisfied. You basically were happy with your life growing up. I think that's what I heard from you. Yes, yes, yes. You know, my father was the top manager of big main call my company in Soviet Union. And I grew up in a small city with two brothers, with my mother and my grandmother. And my father was enough famous there. You know what it means top manager in Soviet Union or in Russia? It's not what is here. It means that this person has responsibility not about employees when they are working, but about their life, about housing, about medical care, about kindergartens for them, about swimming pools, and so and so and so. We, we had such structure, and we still have such structure, that all social service connect with enterprises. I remember that every evening some poor people came to our home and talked with my father about their life, and I saw this. And I think all my deep social volunteers' work was born from what I saw that time. It's strange, maybe, but one time my father came and brought the book. It was a book which, again, could not buy in Soviet time, but some priest gave it to him as present. Of course, the connection with priests was impossible to party members, but my father was enough top for to have some connections with people. And this book called 300 Years of Russian Tsar Romanov Family. And I opened this book. It was a big, huge book, many, many, many pages. 
And I opened this book and found the picture of the last Tsar's son, who was a boy my ages this time. And in this picture I saw the boy who was killed. I knew that he was killed, but I knew from the history lessons that the family were killed because they were very dangerous. It was very dangerous to keep this family after Lenin came. But suddenly I, I remember this moment. Suddenly I look on this picture. I could not understand why this boy could be dangerous, why he was killed. That time I was maybe eight years old. It started my doubt about everything. I never was dissident because my life really was very interesting in activity. But at the same time, what I want to tell, that even for me, which lived not in big city, but in small city, this smell of open world was in my nose too. I think it was maybe the basic reason for a collapse. Of course, I am sure that we had economical reason, but even now, after my very good education, not only in technical university, but then in economical academia, I cannot understand the difference. In Soviet time, we had big tube of oil, and all Soviet Union lived by this, the sell, selling this oil. Now we have the same tube, but for this oil lives only a small group of people. And I cannot understand. Now it's more and more active people start to think why uh, we are so poor. Which brings me back to the National Peace Foundation and how you got connected with them. You said you were not a dissident when you were a young woman. You were pretty satisfied with your life, but you had the smell of freedom, the smell of this different way of living. Why did you become a peace activist, of all things? Uh, and, of course, I'm going to ask the same question to Sarah in a moment. Since Perestroika, we started to have conflicts. And I saw this conflict. And, you know, the root of my father and my family came from Caucasus. My father was from North Ossetia. And I knew from literature and from real life how different the life there. In mountains were many different small nationality lives with different languages, and how it was difficult to bring peace there by Soviet time. But Soviet power brought this peace, but since Perestroika, this conflict started. And I saw that it's something wrong in my life, and in Soviet life. We really didn't see the difference between nationality, who was from which family, who was Jewish, who was Armenian, who was Russian, who was... It was absolutely not important for me. But suddenly, it became to be so important. You are from Georgia, and you are from uh, South Ossetia. I even didn't know that it's different culture there, and there had not natural connection in one state. Suddenly, we discover that Armenian and Azerbaijan who always lived so close and so friendly, they become to be enemy. And I knew women from Azerbaijan and from Armenia who started to tell about each other that they occupied the territory. And one part of this group said, 
okay, in 17th century, our families came to this part of Caucasus, and it is our land. Another group started to say, but in 15th century, our family came to this. It was so strange, and I think it's absolutely wrong position. And when I met Sarah, I think she gave me the first knowledge about conflict resolution, and she invited me to participate in the first Transcaucasus dialogue of women. And it was very important for me. It, I told by this meeting, by one of first meetings with these women from Georgia, Abkhazia, Azerbaijan, and Armenia, that inside myself I have so many nationalities. My mother from Ukraine, my father from Ossetia, my babushka is Russian, and my grandfather was from Poland. And how can I live inside myself? My soul is like whole country, but I try to find the way to live because I see sometimes my behavior is very Caucasus, typical Caucasus tradition, but sometimes it's very Russian. And my daughter, whose father is from Germany, she is even more complex. I try to find consensus between these different traditions in myself. It means we need to do the same for countries and for people who live in different countries. Well, Sarah, it sounds like you were a part of Olga's transformation. What transformed you? I was an activist in the U.S. women's movement for 25 years and came quite improbably as someone who lived in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, I became a national leader. I was president of the American Association of University Women, which in the late 80s was a formidable organization. Through that, we created a council of presidents of national women's organizations, which still exists as the National Council of Women's Organizations. So I was very active in coalition building, bringing people from different organizations together to lobby and to determine their priorities in state capitals and then to work together using their respective strengths to achieve those goals. So that was the work that I was principally involved in in the women's movement. My question was always about power. What is power? And I, in fact, created a term during the years that the feminization of poverty was a term very much in currency. I didn't like the term because it certainly represented women as victims, and I created the term the feminization of power. And for me, the feminization of power meant essentially looking at power not as something that excluded or imposed, but in the metaphor, let's say, of electricity that turned on rural America or the photosynthesis that generates the growth in plants. It is the power that cannot in any way be dependent on a single person or a hierarchy. It only works when people come together and share the strength, regenerate one another's lapses in hope or belief or dreams, and can together agree upon a goal and figure out how to use our talents collectively. So in any case, that principle, I guess, had been the sort of the center of my work in women's organizations, and it was the Cold War that brought me into the role of peacemaking. As Olga had told you, I helped to co-chair something called the Soviet American Women's Summit in 1990, and it was held just before the summit of Bush and Gorbachev. It grew out of another organization, very strange one, called Women for Meaningful Summits that had been created some years before. It was women's organizations that, first of all, started taking out 
ads in the New York Times and the Washington Post and other big publications before the major summits of Reagan and Gorbachev and then Bush and Gorbachev saying, essentially, look, you guys, you know, here you are, you hold the fate of the world in your hands, and you're struggling about this or that nuclear weapon, which can blow us all up. Well, clearly work on that, but there are so many other issues. In other words, make this a meaningful summit. So this organization, uh, which was really a, another coalition of many Washington-based women's organizations that had international issues as part of their focus, it was under these auspices that I first went to the Soviet Union. It wasn't until 1989, but I happened there at a moment of history. Tiananmen Square happened in China while I was there, and it had a big impact on people. I was invited by the Soviet Women's Committee with a group of women who represented both NATO, North Atlantic Treaty Alliance, and the Warsaw Pact, which was its Soviet equivalent. And so there were women from 26 countries, and we were there to speak about women, ecology, and peace. But the other thing that happened just accidentally while we were there was the meeting that Gorbachev held with the Supreme Soviet, the first one where he told the truth about the reality of the Soviet Union, or at least closer to the truth than Soviet citizens had ever before heard about the challenges that they faced ahead. And he made the mistake of saying at the end of his speech, I'd like to hear from you what you think about this. If any of you have any reply, you're welcome to make it. And I ask you to only to limit yourself to 20 minutes. Well, he was speaking from the Soviet experience where only one person spoke and the people in the audience nodded, you know, the people who were <laughs> part of the congregation. But in this case, everyone had something to say. It was an amazing phenomenon because what had been planned to be a three-day Supreme Soviet meeting was stretching into its second week when we arrived in the Soviet Union. And every Russian that we could see was walking with a radio to his ear or looking inside a window to see the TV because they were hearing things that had never been spoken beyond the kitchen table. It was in this setting that the idea for a Soviet-American Women's Summit was born. And, in fact, we brought the first ideologically diverse delegation that ever left the Soviet Union to come to the United States. Ideologically diverse because it was the, so it was the Soviet Women's Committee, the one women's organization Olga spoke of, that chose half the delegates and made it possible for them to get to the United States. But we insisted that the other half of the delegates be selected by people like Colette Shulman that Olga spoke about as her first American contact, women from America who had had a great deal of experience in the Soviet Union. And so we set before ourselves a rather modest task. We wanted to come up with a consensus document on what should happen at the next summit between Bush and Gorbachev that was going to happen one month later in Washington. And all we started with was a title, From Disarmament to Daycare, Women's Vision for the 21st Century. And if you know, these summits are managed very, very carefully by Sherpas, who do all the groundwork on both sides, figuring out what, in fact, can be agreed upon and what cannot be agreed upon. And then, really, it turns out that there might be one issue left that, you know, when the two presidents get together, they debate. They typically, in other words, are pretty much formalized. Well, in our case, all we had was a title and the recognition to ourselves that we had a press conference scheduled three days later. 
And Izvestia signed up for it. Itar Tass signed up for it. All the major Soviet news agencies turned up for it. So, so suddenly, the Soviet group, no matter how diverse it was, was determined that this had to be a success. And I think the same was true of the organizations on the American side. If you know, if it was going to be a press event, we couldn't say, "Well, we couldn't decide, folks." And so. We created a consensus document with basically eight principles that dealt with the participation of women in high-level positions. It dealt with health rights, human rights. It dealt with ecological principles and standards. It dealt with the issue of non-military intervention into another country or another province. That. Military intervention simply should not be used. So it still looks, 20 plus years later, very impressive as a document. Actually, when we look back on it, when we share it with other people, they say, "Well, gee, that still sounds like it would work." But it became clear to me that if we were, as our document claimed, the two remaining superpowers, that we really had a lot that we could and should learn from one another, and a lot that we could do together. And as a matter of fact, another of our purposes, we met at the United Nations in New York. Because one of our purposes was to try to figure out how these only two superpowers could work together to improve the lot of women around the world, so that was how we started. My first, I suppose, active peace building that Olga also mentioned was with the Transcaucasus Women's Dialogue. I got, I'm not even sure how, hooked into helping to start an Armenian women's organization here in the United States, and what they wanted to do was to work with Armenia, who was in an active war with Azerbaijan. And so we organized a meeting for women leaders in Armenia, and they objected to the fact that they had really invited women from their enemy, Azerbaijan, and from Georgia, and none of these women had been allowed in Armenia over the new borders that were set up. How could, in fact, any peace building happen if all the borders were so high and the fences so tall that no one could meet each other? So that was what led the National Peace Foundation to form the Transcaucasus Women's Dialogue. Working in the South Caucasus, and we moved into work in the North Caucasus with another excellent women's group that we met on the way, women of the Don region, who became committed to dealing with the consequences of the war in Chechnya. And so Olga and I moved. Actually, we brought together the women that we'd worked with in the South Caucasus with people from the North Caucasus, and we've really managed to focus people. And we now not only work with women. Not on differences, but in, in finding what they share in the way of problems. And once that discovery is made, once people discover how much they are like one another, and how much what they consider the major problem in their lives is like the major problem in the life of their quote enemy, it is quite easy then to move to trust-building activities and to ask people now put your Most pragmatic headpiece on, and try to figure out what is a fundamental issue that we can address together that could make a real difference. Peace is the bread we break. Love is the river rolling. Life is a chance we take when we make this earth our home. Gonna make this earth our home. Feel the cool breeze blowing through the smoke and the heat. Hear the gentle voices and the marching feet singing. Call back the fire, draw the missiles down, and we'll call this earth our home. Pieces, pieces, the bread we break, love is.
Once you got the melody down, feel free to try some harmony. And don't be afraid of harmony. Harmony is any note that your neighbor isn't singing. We have known the atom, the power and pain. We've seen people fall beneath the killing rain. If the mind still reasons and the soul remains, it shall never be again. Peace is the bread we break, love. Earth, our home, gonna make this earth our home. Peace grows from a tiny seed as the acorn grows into the tallest tree. Many years ago, I heard a soldier say, When people want peace, better get out of the way. was Pieces by Fred Small. Fred happens to be a Unitarian minister, amongst other things. You're listening to an interview with Sarah Harder, president of the National Peace Foundation, and another National Peace Foundation member, Olga Bosolova. I guess I've got a real important outstanding question. I guess it's not surprising, Sarah, considering your long-standing work with women and women's groups you form these connections in Soviet Union with women. Still, when it comes to war, men are usually the ones who are at the helm. Are you making the inroads into this male population, these testosterone-driven conflicts? Maybe you've gotten women so that they don't get at each other's throats, but what about really affecting peace on a worldwide level? Have either of you seen significant changes and inroads into that culture of war? No. But for me, peace is not a soft-headed principle. It is not something that can be achieved easily, and it's not going to be achieved easily as long as we have as many institutional structures, both in the United States and still in Russia and everywhere else in the world, that are, in fact, focused on war. So where do we choose to work? We choose to work with groups of people, to work with them together to figure out solutions to those problems. And I think what we're doing is not solving the issue of world peace. But what we are doing is to build and reinforce the democratic structures 
that help people to see that they can work with others to determine new ways of doing things, and in fact those new ways can become new institutions, alternative institutions. I ultimately believe that it is solving those fundamental issues, those political, social, economic issues, that is the basis for war. Our work in the Middle East now increasingly looks at those same issues. It is water that is the major issue in the Middle East, and it is, of course, economic disparities and power disparities between Palestinians and Israelis. I do believe that the way we will ultimately get at these with volunteer workers and a small staff is, in fact, to try as much as we can to replicate ourselves. Once people have become involved in those issues at a local level, we can see that at least in communities, there is a greater sense of hope, of possibility, and of peaceful connection with one another. As for these massive institutional structures, the United States and its military-industrial complex, which has only become more entrenched and rigid with the Iraq War, and with the Soviet administrative structure that still exists in Russia today under another name, they call it democracy, I can't see at this point, that we can change this. In our work, we can see change, and we can see people who believe in themselves and believe in possibilities and hope to make their lives different, and who learn through our work with diverse groups to be more tolerant of one another, learn to understand that an Armenian and an Azeri have a lot to offer, and to bring women from Beslan together with women from Russia or women from Chechnya together with Russia. Olga, I'm used to thinking that religions and spiritual movements in the United States are a significant force behind many of the positive changes that take place, as well as some of the negative ones. I don't think that that is so clearly the case where you come from. I'm assuming you grew up non-religiously, but I could be wrong. Does that play much role in your society there now? Religion plays more and more big role in Russia. Russian Orthodox Church is very strong, and it really plays a very big role. Many new churches, they build it across Russia, and now in each small village, we have priests and people who are coming to church and try to find help there. But I hate it. You know, it is like so strange torn from the atheism that nobody must don't believe in church, to religion when everybody must believe. I don't want to talk about God and religion, but when we are talking about Russian Orthodox Church, it's very strong political and economical structure, which I think use people for to be more strong politically, more strong economically, more rich, and I don't see that give real support or real help or real changes in human lives. Of course, I don't talk about several people who have priests who are very honest and very deep religion and very but in common, I think it's a structure. It is a part of government structure who don't respect real human rights and the choices of people. Unfortunately, maybe I'm wrong because I really not religion in this meaning. You see, I am warring across and when I 
was a child, I was baptized. Of course, my father didn't know it because it was impossible for him to know such thing, but my grandmother did it for me because she was enough religion for to believe that child for future life needs to be baptized. Maybe I'm wrong, and I apologize if I am wrong about this, that what I see, it is a political structure of all this government game which is going now in Russia. I'm just checking this to make sure that I do understand the influence you see of religion in your area is that the Russian Orthodox Church is really a power structure. It gathers wealth, and it's not really making a positive difference in people's life, at least on the material plane. Again, we need to talk Russia is so big. It's very big. For instance, in Svedlovsk region, where uh, Ural, when we are working, I think uh, Vladika Vikenti, who is the head of this regional church, he started the social service for poor people, and he accepts that addicted people need help, and he creates special center for such people. And I think it's very positive. But I see it, it's only in one region, and maybe it depends from this great person, the head of the church. In common, what I see by TV, I cannot say that some positive changes initiated by Orthodox Church. They declare only we, we are the only one right religion for all people. And for me, it's Bolsheviks. It's strange, but, you know, not communists, but Bolsheviks. Bolsheviks who were absolutely believed that only they are a right party for all population. What's your experience with this? Is it positive or negative force, Sarah? Particularly, you've been a women's activist for much of your life, and certainly the Catholic Church and many other religions have worked very hard to hold women down over the centuries. Have you received positive or negative effects and support from religious establishment? I grew up a Roman Catholic. I left the church and became an Episcopalian, and I have, since moving here to Wisconsin, become a Unitarian. I find what I have done personally is to move from religions that, at the time I was involved with them, were very restrictive in allowing people to make choices and very prescriptive in what was right and what was wrong. I find in my relationship with the Unitarian Fellowship here very positive. I like the social activism that is at its center. I like the non-judgmental attitude, the teaching of tolerance, the honesty with which it approaches the education of children. I'm not an every Sunday goer, but I'm a continued supporter of the Unitarian Fellowship here and the Unitarian faith in the country. As far as our work in peace building, we have found that there are many what I would call mainstream Protestant churches that have been great allies for our work. The United Methodists, the Church of Christ, many such churches, the National Council of Churches. On the other hand, of course, when religion moves to the totally prescriptive, we are the only one mode, I think it becomes a very destructive force. And certainly that has been the case, I think, for a large part in Russia. I agree with Olga there. 
the Russian Orthodox Church has done everything it can to eliminate the possibility of competitors. They even have laws now that restrict proselytizing by any faith that was not a part of for a hundred years past or something. So they're, you know, they're doing all that they can to restrict that. On the other hand, I would say that we find in the people that we work with that evangelical Protestant faiths are growing quite against the wishes of the Russian Orthodox Church, although one of the interesting things that we've done is to bring together leaders of addiction centers run by recovering addicts with Orthodox priests who are also running treatment centers. So again, I think it proves to us further that to the extent that you can bring people together around a common interest, the differences are minimized and the rigid institutional do's and don'ts become much less important than what can we do together. Maybe one more thing about the Russian Orthodox Church. I understood now when I'm talking with you why I don't like it. Because, you know, in this religion, the role of women is very special. It's the role of wife and mother at home. And new Russian Orthodox Church leads this role and talk about this very much because the population of Russian people raised down and women must don't try to be leaders in political or economical, but they must what they call return back to family. And I think it's absolutely wrong message, wrong and even cynical. Mostly families cannot do it because it's impossible to live for the salary of one person in family. I've kept you a pretty long time already, and I'm sure we all need to move on, but I think it would be unfortunate if I went away without giving people some idea of how to contact you and some of the programs they might get active in. You've got programs certainly in Asia and Russia. You've got stuff in the Middle East. I think you just got a grant from the State Department to do some resolution and bringing people together there. You've got stuff going in Africa. So how do people get involved in this if they care about kind of developing peace from the bottom up? How do they get connected with you? And can they go off next year and help out in some way? Well, the principle of the National Peace Foundation, when we call ourselves building foundations for peace, I think we are speaking of the kind of foundations that Olga and I are speaking of. And we don't believe in a top-down structure. What we try to do is to bring together, to inform and engage people who believe themselves to be activists and who want to do something real about peace. The National Peace Foundation has a website, of course. It's www.nationalpeace.org. And for our Middle Eastern programs, I would suggest another website, kathysultan.org, because Kathy, who is a member of our board of directors, has written two recent books on the Middle East, one on Lebanon and one on the Israeli-Palestinian crisis, and it is she who has inspired us to do the broader work. Olga, I know you're here visiting with a friend and maybe doing some of your work. How much longer are you likely to be here, Olga? One more week here, and then I will return. And Sarah, where do you go from here? As the president of the National Peace Foundation, does this mean you have meetings all over the world? No, we are a National Peace Foundation, and our base is in Washington, D.C., and I will be traveling there in the near future to work on our organizational business, but I will be returning to Russia in September. I generally work there about four months out of each year as a volunteer. I am myself retired from the University of Wisconsin, and I feel a real responsibility, an absolute responsibility, 
to use my time constructively and productively for others. And it also happens to be the greatest fun I've ever had in the world. Well, doing work for peace as fun certainly sounds like a noble aspiration. <laughs> Thanks to both of you, Olga and Sarah. Спасибо. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. Last night I had the strangest dream I never dreamed before. I dreamed the world had all agreed to put an end to war. I dreamed I saw a mighty room, the room was full of men. And the paper they were signing said They'd never fight again And when the paper was all signed And a million copies made They all joined hands and bowed their heads And grateful prayers were prayed And the people in the streets below Were dancing round and round And swords and guns and uniforms Were scattered on the ground Last night I had the strangest dream I never dreamed before I dreamed the world had all agreed To put an end to war I dreamed I saw a mighty room The room was full of men And the paper they were signing said They'd never fight again Last night I had the strangest dream I never dreamed before I dreamed the world had all agreed To put an end to war That was Pete Seeger and Last Night I Had the Strangest Dream. You've been listening to an interview with Sarah Harder and Olga Basolova of the National Peace Foundation. You can listen to this program and other programs via my website, northernspiritradio.org, and find helpful information on that site as well. The theme music for Spirit in Action is I Have No Hands But Yours by Carol Johnson. Thank you for listening. I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. You can email me at helpsmeet at usa.net. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. I have no higher call for you than this To love and serve your neighbor Enjoy and selflessness Love and serve your neighbor in joy and selflessness.